Welcome. This is Out of the Ordinary Books, where we believe that the books we read help us better understand the lives we lead. I'm Lisa Jo Baker. And I'm Christy Purifoy. And every week we share an Out of the Ordinary book and how it can help you make sense of your story too. These aren't book reviews or recommendations. These are conversations about some of our best friends, worst enemies, toughest coaches, most passionate lovers, and kindest teachers that line our bookshelves. We hope these conversations help you see the deeper story hidden right in plain sight in your ordinary life, too. Get comfy. Here we go. Lisa Joe, you know this, our listeners know this, that I grew up in Texas. I went to college in Texas. And my second year in college, I have this vivid memory of going into a darkened meeting room in the student center. And it was darkened because we were going to see some slide presentation. And I had chosen to be there because I was interested in a travel abroad, study abroad semester. Can you guess? Can you guess what country? Well, definitely somewhere not warm. So like, I'm guessing like (laughs) Ireland or Scotland. (laughs) Oh, Somewhere word, in the United Kingdom. So well. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was probably trying to get as close to the North Pole as possible, <laughs> but in the most like um, uh, comfortable way. You know, I'm not going to try. Easy way. Yes. I wanted to study. I wanted to do this study abroad program in Scotland. Um, I And I'm, I've been trying to remember why? <laughs> what What was it about Scotland? It was definitely Scotland. And I can't actually remember, but knowing myself now, um, there were I was probably drawn by things maybe then I couldn't even articulate, but I'm sure it was, um, you know, the what I perceived as the moodier, gloomier weather, <laughs> right? So the opposite of yeah. where I was growing up in central Texas, um, misty green hills, history. You know, I loved, I was studying... Um, British literature and British history at the time. So I think all these things drew me um, to that room. But it's cold but I never plus made it... cozy. I feel like that's what it, I guess, right. at least in your mind, right? Like I've never right. been there either, but it has this romantic appeal of like the cold outside and then a roaring fire inside in a castle. Oh, I don't know yes. why I'm in a castle when I imagine this, but I am. I'm in a oh, castle totally. by a Definitely. fire. Yes. There's a lock outside and I'm reading a book. Yes. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, definitely, definitely Castle. Well, Lisa Joe, I never made it to Scotland. I never made it to that study abroad program uh, because I got engaged instead. Oh, that, wow. Jonathan, we'll have some words after Jonathan. this. <laughs> yes, yes. But I got engaged instead. And, and it would be easy to portray that as like a, a path diverged in the woods. And I took... <laughs> I took this path. But actually, um, so yes, at that time, um, Jonathan and I were very close. We had been in high school together. Now we were at the same uh, university. And I told him about wanting to do this study abroad program. And he started to get really interested in the idea of going to Scotland, too. (laughs) It does sound like him. So... Right, it does, right? You know, he I love that about him. He picks up enthusiasms and he shares enthusiasms and he shares the enthusiasms of others. So we started really just dreaming together. And I think when people dream together, 
not even plan together, dream yeah. together, like dream in the same direction. Yeah. That is really when you connect. And so at that point we were dating and but a part of dreaming about Scotland and then that led to other kinds of dreams and things we could do together. Well, that led to engagement. <laughs> that led to eventually marriage. And I think I realized in that season that Jonathan was someone I could share these dreams with, that these were things that maybe we could do together, which at that time, and I was right, I'm so glad, <laughs> um, just sounded even better, right? Like I didn't, I, you know, I could follow my dreams on my own or Jonathan and I could do them together. So in a way, it, it didn't matter so much that we didn't end up in Scotland. Mm. <laughs> what mattered is that we started dreaming together. Mm. But I thought of this, I remembered this as I read a book I'm going to tell you about today. So it's time to introduce you and our listeners to the friend at the table <laughs> for this conversation. Are you ready? Yes, bring it. All right. So I am, well, I'm actually not even talking about just one book today, but it's a, it's a friend. So the friend, the writer is Alexander McCall Smith, a very prolific yes. writer. And I will admit, I have not read 99.9% of his books because he has so many. Um, I've only read a couple, um, but I have been lately really taken with a series, um, the uh, Isabel Dalhousie series. And it's interesting. So I have two. I have the first one and the second one here. And on the my copy of the first one, it's called the first Isabel Dalhousie novel. The second one I have here, it's now called an Isabel Dalhousie mystery. Oh, interesting. And actually that will be important because it it's a little it's a little unclear whether we're reading traditional mystery. So I'll say more about that. But the first one is The Sunday Philosophy Club. And then I read the second one called Friends, Lovers, Chocolate. And these books are set in Scotland. Nice. And they are set in Edinburgh. They are set in Edinburgh. And Edinburgh is a character in these novels. Just pause for a second. The second book's yes. title is Friends, Lovers, Chocolate? Yes. Oh my gosh. It's like all three of those things. <laughs> I mean, actually, in the introduction to the show, we talk about how we're going to be introducing you to our dearest friends, most passionate lovers, you know, the books that line our shelves. Uh -huh. Oh, well done you. What a great choice. <laughs> friends, lovers, chocolate. And I'm just going to pause for a moment to say it doesn't surprise me that chocolate would come up when you're talking about Edinburgh or Scotland, because may we all please agree that the very best chocolate in the entire world is made by the Cadbury's company, which is <laughs> UK based and sadly uh -huh. not widely available in the United States. But I miss it like nothing. And I actually have to detour to say, do you have those commercials that as a child just stuck in your mind? Like there's oh, certain yeah. commercials from my childhood that are just like fixed in my mind. And there was a Cadbury's commercial that was like everything that this book seems to be. So there I had this little kid in South Africa. We don't know what cold or snow or any of those things are. And it was a commercial shot where there's a, a young girl, like a literal milkmaid. She like milks this cow. and But it's all very misty. Like she's sort of backlit and she brings <laughs> the milk in and they churn it and then they make they make this beautiful slab of chocolate that she's walking up a country way in a village, you know, and hands to the young 
farmer's son and they eat this chocolate together. And it's, I think the tagline was like Cadbury's love in every bite or something like that. (laughs) I just remember being like, Cadbury's is everything. (laughs) And now when you talk about this book, that is what I am picturing. Yeah, yeah. You know, that reminds me that when Jonathan and I, so here, we never made it to Scotland, but we did make it to Ireland. When we were young, uh, before we had kids, we visited Ireland together and we hiked around a lot in the West. And what we would do is we'd stay at these B&Bs and we would fill up in the morning on, on their like massive, wonderful breakfasts. And, and then because we were young and didn't have a lot of money, we would um, put in our backpacks um, a big bar of Cadbury dairy <gasps> milk yes, and yes. like a loaf of bread or something. Yes. <laughs> so, and the dairy milk is the chocolate where the bottom of the slab is like a milk chocolate. And then the top of the little squares is that uh, white chocolate. Do you know what I'm talking about? Did you see those? Oh, I haven't actually. No, I just remember just a like all the way through milk chocolate okay. slab. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. And, so but many you're versions. right that, so I'm remembering it because that commercial, which I've never seen, but I too had this idea of Cadbury chocolate as wholesome, <laughs> as like yes. a perfectly acceptable alternative to lunch <laughs> while you're out <laughs> hiking, you know, the hills <laughs> of Ireland. Absolutely. It just, yeah, it felt like, like that wasn't an indulgence. It was like good fuel for oh, what yeah, we were no, doing. It was, was good for you. Yeah. Yes. And produced by farmers yeah. and very healthy cows. Right. I know for some reason, Cadbury's has done that to me too. And I will say on a just very visceral note, a slab of Cadbury's chocolate is a very substantial thing. Like it's thick and heavy. Yes. Whereas I find like Hershey's here in the States are very thin. Like it's like wafer chocolate slab almost. But Cadbury's is like when you bite into a square, you have a whole mouthful of chocolate. It's so rich and heavy. And you feel like you can taste the cream that I would see in the commercial as if it had just arrived from a cow. Mm -hmm. So I am with Mm -hmm. you in my Cadbury's snobbery. Well, I have to admit, now I feel I'm being disloyal to Hershey, Pennsylvania, which is not far from my house. But it's true. The Hershey bars are way too thin for my no, taste. So, yeah, yes. No, it's not the same I, at all. I'm here for that thick slab of chocolate. So, yeah, as delightful as the titles are, the novels are so delightful. And they are quirky. And like most books that I love, I often think how many people would not share that love. <laughs> they... um they're mysteries, but are they? The mysteries are so subtle. Isabel, the main character, is a philosopher. That is her profession. She is a philosopher. She is the editor of the Journal of Applied Ethics. Nice. And she spends her days um, reading papers submitted for the journal, editing them, and thinking in depth and on and on, a sort of stream of consciousness in these novels, thinking about moral dilemmas, her duties, her obligations to her fellow man. This is Isabel, (laughs) 40-something, divorcee, a wealthy woman living in uh, this home inherited from her father in Edinburgh, um, as she would say, a creature of the city and of the city in particular. Um, So these are, like many books that I love, they are subtle and quiet. Um, And I love that because they're so well-written that I love that sense of discovering like the quieter, subtle grace notes that a really excellent author weaves in. I love it when things are not hammering you on the head, you know, Mm -hmm. notice me, look, look, look what I'm doing, but just are there. And I feel like, so something about this 
author I discovered is he's also among many other things. He's very accomplished, but he's a musician. And I feel like he writes musically. Ooh, and that's it made my me realize I love Yeah, I love novels that do that. Novels that are like you almost want to read sentences out loud. Mm. Novels that finish exactly right. And there was a, actually a quotation um, in the second one because Isabel is also a musician, um, as is her very good friend Jamie. And so music, off classical music, often comes up. And she said something in this last novel about how a song must end, that the composer can't just have any old note at the end, but it has to have a, a, a some note that will signal resolution. Mm. And he does that so well with language in his novels that they just have this beautiful sound of resolution at the end. So these are not, you might find them in the mystery and thriller category. These are not thrillers. <laughs> no, that, no, that's the good. That's it. So, I mean, I guess that's what they call the cozy mystery, right? Yeah. I mean, that's like a whole thing. The other interesting thing. So someone actually um, uh, reached out to me recently because she saw that I was reading these and she said, oh, would you recommend these? I have a friend who's going through something very difficult and um, I, I just wanted to send her some books that are very light, you know, cozy. Mm. And do you think th- this this would be a good choice? And I had to tell her that that I wasn't sure about that because mm. yes, these are so cozy and we will, we will talk more about the coziness that is Edinburgh <laughs> in these in these novels. They're so cozy and they're gentle, very gentle, quiet. But because Isabel is a philosopher, she is also thinking about weightier things, matters of life and death. And, and so the themes are sometimes um, quite serious in the mm. way that I think mysteries often do really, really well. Um, even if these aren't like murderous thrillers, they are dealing with weighty topics, as traditional detective novels often are. So, in that sense, they're they're cozy and they're light, but they're weighty and serious as well. Um, I like that. So if, if, it feels worth yeah. the read, then. I like that, and maybe I'm jumping the gun and you're going to say this, but of course, Alexander McCall Smith is famously from the African continent, and he grew up, he was born in Zimbabwe. At the time, it was Rhodesia. Um, and lived there until he moved to study in Edinburgh at the University of Edinburgh. But he's the most interesting man because he lived in Edinburgh, but he returned to the southern to Southern Africa to Rhodesia or Zimbabwe. And he was his father was a public prosecutor. He helped found a law school. He taught on law and ethics, medical law, and bioethics. So I guess it doesn't surprise me that one of his main characters thinks a great deal about ethics. But mm-hmm, I have mm-hmm. over the years repeatedly had people ask me, oh my gosh, have you read Alexander McCall Smith? Because his most famous series is the number one ladies detective agency series. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. I want to pause there for a second because um, I have tried to read those books. You and I have had this conversation and I couldn't get mm-hmm. into them. I really, really struggled. And part of it is because if you're from a place and that's the place that's being written about. For you, the place isn't just a story, right? It's not just a setting or a background. It's a reality. And in those stories, he tells very painful histories and insights of the place I'm from. And they are often depict um, violence against women. There's a lot of very difficult uh what I would call, you know, sort of 
spirit worship or uh, obsession with ancestors who rule people's lives in cruel ways. And even though his characters in those books, I understand, are amazing and they overcome these things, that mm-hmm. is the background. Like, that's the life that they are enmeshed in. And I find them really difficult. I try to read them. And I guess I'm just one of those people who, if I have a choice between reading a book that takes me out of my life or reading yeah. one that takes me deeper into parts of my life, I always choose to to go out. <laughs> I just do. And so yeah. I, I always felt a um, vague sense of guilt that I couldn't get into his number one Ladies Detective Agency series. I really wanted to, and I tried to, and I would keep reading and be like, oh my gosh, and then this terrible thing happened, and that happened to a child, and it's and even though his main character is amazing and wonderful and she is tender-hearted and she overcomes terrible things i just couldn't read it as like my saturday afternoon read but it's why i feel really hopeful about this new series i just got online while we were talking and ordered the first two books from the library and i'm hopeful <laughs> that maybe i get a dose of him and his voice but in a different setting mm-hmm. now that's so far removed from my own life it's maybe easier to walk around in and ask hard questions mm-hmm. if that makes sense yeah oh that makes so much sense and it makes me realize lisa joe that that two things are happening for me as i read one is is escape and head, just spending time in a place that is so different from where I live right now, which is more rural and is America and Pennsylvania, um, and spending time in such a different place. So the escape of escapism of that, and it's almost like travel. Mm. Right now, we we um, we haven't been able to travel, and these books are like traveling to Edinburgh because oh. Edinburgh is a character in the novels. He is clearly writing them as they're. I would say they're just love letters to this city, and. Just he, he's very clear about the names of streets and how buildings look, and he wants his reader to see the city and love the city oh, the way he does. Yeah, and I say he. I'm speaking of the author rather than Isabel because there is a funny thing. I don't know if it's just me, but as I read them, um, she's such a funny character, and sometimes she says things that just to me sound like they're they're him and not like a forty something <laughs> woman. So. They're like a 70-something white man who said that. Yeah, yeah. It is weird that a man writes a woman. I mean, is that something you've seen a lot? Like, I guess that's strange to me that there's a man, and really in in all these, well, these two series, his primary protagonists are women, but he's a dude. He's an older white man writing these Mm -hmm. women. And one of them, she's a black African woman. And one of them, I assume she's a white Scottish woman. Yeah, yeah. And and yet I'm not fully convinced sometimes. Like I feel like I'm hearing his voice quite strongly. And but that's okay. It's it's okay. it's totally fine. So on the one hand, I'm escaping into his city and he is causing me to see it and to love it. On the other hand, it reminds me so strongly of the decade I spent living in Hyde Park in Chicago. Oh, yes. I could so see that. Strongly. Yes. Yeah, I think it's it's a couple of things. It's the urban living, for one thing, the leaving your front door and walking down the sidewalk to the walking down the street to the cafe or the delicatessen, uh, meeting friends for coffee around the corner. And it's just all those descriptions of what it's like to live in a city, number one. Number two, um, for those who don't know Hyde Park in Chicago, it's the home of the University of Chicago and the architecture of that campus and of many buildings just throughout the neighborhood is neo-Gothic, yeah. is sort of this medieval British 
castle and cathedral architecture. Right. And so, qua- with with quadrangles, and you know, we'd meet friends at the quad, and it it was built here to explicitly evoke um, British universities that are you know were, are actually medieval. <laughs> this would just be sort of neo neo medieval neo gothic, and so just the descriptions of the stone and the um, leaded windows and the winding staircases and the libraries. You know, she here is a character who's often going to libraries and. The fact that she's an academic and is in conversation with academics, all of these little details for me are bringing back that time of my life in a way that that is slightly painful mm. <laughs> in, a, in that nostalgic sense. So in, enjoyable, but also filling me with a kind of longing for a time that is over, a place where I no longer live, as well, I think, tapping into that deep-seated path I didn't take in college yes. when instead of going and studying abroad in possibly Edinburgh, <laughs> um, I I got engaged and, and started planning that life and this life that I'm now leading. And so as I read these novels, I I'm I'm reading them because I'm so enjoying spending time with Isabel. I'm so enjoying um the mysteries. I you know, I love mysteries because they keep you turning pages. You want to know the solution to the puzzle, even though these mysteries are very quiet and very subtle. But also because I'm almost vicariously living a life in a place that I did once really want. And now, let's be honest, Lisa Joe, I'm in my 40s. It's not happening. <laughs> You're not you doing guys aren't a study moving to Edinburgh semester. for like a year. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can visit. Maybe I will visit Edinburgh. I would love that. I hope I get. Maybe to. the four of us should go sometime. That'd be fun yes, when our kids are gone. <laughs> that would be amazing. But that is not living there. Yeah, that is not walking out my own front door there. That is not heading down to the cafe that has become like my cafe. Mm. That will never happen. And. And it might seem like a silly thing because I'm content with my life. I don't actually want to trade places with this fictional character and have her life or live in her city. And yet... You don't um, have the choice. Like, that's, I think, the hardest... That's not an option. Yeah. It, yeah. it could have Whereas been if you were 20. I had... Yes. Or 18 or 19, 19, however old I was, I had the choice. Yes. It was maybe an option. Ooh, you've hit on and a nerve. it's not. Yes. Just, yes. That is... <laughs> You and I have stood many a time in your kitchen and had this conversation about our lives, how we're at that age now where suddenly you can't be or do anything anymore. There's a a narrowing and you find yourself walking down a corridor with much fewer turnoffs and then wondering, oh no, like, is this the path (laughs) I want to be on? Oh, painful, painful. And I think for me, it taps into a particular ache that seems to get worse as I get older, not better. Time has made it much worse, but it's my choice to come and study in America. So you chose not to study in Edinburgh. I I chose to come and study here in America, having no clue at 20 that what I was choosing would be a husband and a future and a house in Maryland and an ocean between me and my family. Like, there's no way I could predict that. I was literally having your experience. I read about America. I loved it. My parents had lived in Pennsylvania for three years (laughs) when my dad was a student. 
I thought that'll be fun. You know, 20, what are you, you're just thinking, what are you thinking? It'll be an adventure. I'll go and see where dad lived and I'll go check it out for a few years. And what you don't realize is in those pivotal times in your life, look, you met John and got engaged. I came here and met Peter and got engaged. And I remember when Peter talked to my father about wanting to marry me, my dad actually said to him, you know, this wasn't supposed to happen. She was supposed to come home. That is that is what we expected would happen. And I live with that choice. That choice then branches out into a million other choice trees, but they're all here in America. And it's a daily pain for me, especially as I see pictures of my siblings who all live very close together in South Africa. They have big families. They get together all the time. And here we are, not there. And so I think... Imagine if you'd gone to Edinburgh and met a boy there and got engaged and you lived there. (laughs) I mean, that's part of what's so strange about the choices we make in our youth. We just have no idea. And I have really struggled with it. It it is a choice I don't know that I've ever made 100% peace with because of the loss. And uh, I I do feel sure that this obviously is the man I'm supposed to be with and I don't want to turn my, you know, Mm -hmm. take back my kids. But I live with that ache and that question mark, having made the choice in the same way that you might live with it, having not made the choice. And it's a strange reality in our 40s now because you can't unmake those choices. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what else to say about that. I mean, <laughs> yes, except yes. And it's weird. And it's good maybe to actually think about it. I, I know I've read, um, I don't have it here to read, but I, I know I've read this on the podcast before, the poem um, by Wendell Berry, where he talks about um, his father, I think, and it's the one dedicated to the grand, great-granddaughter who's just been yes. born. And he's, he has a line in there about um, his father making choices that then set all these other people in their places and about learning to choose the things and love the things that we chose not knowing. So you choose not knowing. I chose John not knowing. You chose studying in America and Peter not knowing. And then living is is now that we know is is to go on choosing that and to go on loving that. And, And now that's our choice is not to reject what we've chosen, but to to live into it. And and I think that's where life can be really deeply rooted and fruitful, but it can feel, we can feel the limits of it and the sort of the hard boundaries of it. And every once in a while, maybe it's good to just notice, oh yeah, look at that fence there. I live on this side. (laughs) I'm I'm glad to be on this side, but look, I I could have been over there. I I don't know. It's a strange reality. And I think um, for those of us who've made choices where we've moved maybe away from our roots, and I mean, to a degree, that's your Mm -hmm. experience also. So when Mm -hmm. when you go home to Texas, when I go home to South Africa, there's a sense in which I feel myself going home. But when I get there, I realize I'm a tourist. And that's a very strange feeling. And my family will often joke with me about that in almost a pointed way, I think, to say, oh, it's fun for you. Like you come here on vacation, you know, we take game drives and have beautiful holidays, but you don't live here with difficult exchange rates and what's happening in government and the rolling blackouts that they experience because of the strain on the power grid and just the racial 
ongoing racial conversations and tensions that South Africa is navigating the way America is. Like I don't participate in those fully because I don't live there. And in the most obvious mm-hmm. way, like my accent is very <laughs> distracting for my South African family. And it's funny because Americans might still think every now and again, I say can't or, you know, I talk about the, or I say talk, or I talk about the boot of the car instead of the trunk. But there's such tiny South Africanisms. Yeah. I really have an American accent. And when I'm home, I often become self-conscious of it and morph into more of a South African accent to which my children will say, what are you doing? Like, you sound, you sound so weird. Why are you putting on that accent? And I've actually had some family members say to me who speak Afrikaans, which is one of the languages we speak in South Africa, say, I had um, sort of a distant uncle once put his hand up when we were speaking in a conversation, kind of like to silence me. And he switched into Afrikaans and said, I can't listen to that American accent anymore. Can we speak Afrikaans, please? Because at least in Afrikaans, I don't have an American accent. I might have sort of an English South African accent, but not an American one. And so there's that strange feeling about how even if you try to circle back to those points where you made certain choices, you can't mm-hmm. fully inhabit the before you, yeah. you know, you can't actually get back to that place. And there's been moments in my life where I've had actual panic attacks about it. It's been so difficult to think, oh my gosh, this is my forever choice. And now my son, my oldest, my firstborn, who was born in South Africa, we traveled home to South Africa when I was pregnant so that he could be born there. So I could tell my family after a decade away, I will have my firstborn child here in the motherland. (laughs) That boy said to me when we pulled into our house the other night, it was like a sort of a twilight spring evening. We had all of our lights on that were hanging from the deck and tulips are starting to come out and the sky is beautiful. And he just said to me, and I feel like for a teenage boy, it's always exceptional when you have moments like this. He just sighed and he said, I just love living here. I never want to live anywhere else except here in Maryland. And I was like, oh, wow. what is happening? <laughs> Because this is his roots now. This is where his friends are and his people and his church and his school and his soccer team and his identity. And as much as he loves traveling back and forth to South Africa, he's now from Maryland, which is so odd to me. And I, I don't know quite what to do with those moments in our lives where we realize we've made choices that have actually impacted generations mm-hmm. ahead of us. Like your mm-hmm. kids mm-hmm. might enjoy visiting yeah. Texas, but they are not Texan anymore. Right. Right. Yeah, not at all. And uh, my youngest, I feel that same sense of surprise. She is a native Pennsylvanian. I don't even, <laughs> I don't, I can't comprehend that. Like, what, <laughs> what does that even mean? I don't know. Um, but it, there's the strangeness of it that we would have ended up, you know, in this marriage, moving to a place and bearing a child who would be born here and grow up here and, and maybe go on living here. I don't know. I've done this funny thing lately where I think I almost comfort myself or try to find an escape hatch to these feelings by imagining things like maybe one of my children will go and live in Scotland and I can go (laughs) visit whenever I want. (laughs) 
No, you don't want that. No, this is we live. No, let me caution you. That is a, that is bad thinking. My biggest fear not. is that one of my children will go visit South Africa, fall in love with some South African, and then do what I did, but the reverse, and we'll be living apart. I want all my kids to fall in love with someone within ten miles of my house. And I want us all to live in a big commune and never go anywhere. Like that's my goal right. to keep everybody close, close. <laughs> Uh, I um, had the experience recently where my kids were with um, different family members on a holiday, so a regular seasonal holiday, and I wasn't with them because I had stayed at home to take care of our, we've somehow accumulated a zoo's worth of animals here at Maplehurst. Anyhow, it's very difficult for all of us to leave at once. So I'd stayed here, take care of the animals, get some work done. And so then when they returned, they were telling me about the holiday, and they had a wonderful trip, a wonderful time. But some things about the holiday observance were different, and I realized they weren't exactly saying it, but I started sort of digging into it, and I realized what they were saying is they miss some of the things that have become traditions around this holiday with their mom, and they had missed them. And I, oh, Lisa Joe, I pounced on that, and um, (laughs) it was so fun to realize. And so I said, oh, so does this mean when you're grown up and maybe you're gone, you'll want to come back for these holidays for them to feel like familiar. And they all said, yeah, yeah, we will be back. We'll be back. (laughs) And I thought, yes, I I am. I'm like a mother spider weaving this web (laughs) that will keep my children attached somehow to me and to Maplehurst. (laughs) Oh, that's so great. I know. It's so strange how we have to try to build in rhythms that both release them and pull them back. Because I I love going home to South Africa. You're right. I love my dad has certain traditions and he will actually text me sometimes and be like, I just drank a glass of sherry this evening and thought of you because that's his thing. Every dinner, after dinner, every night by the fire, he'll always have, he has a beautiful little wine cabinet and he'll get out this cut crystal glasses and he'll have, it's just like this beautiful sort of, not a ceremony, but it feels ceremonial. You know, he'll get it out and he'll pour a bit of sherry and stand and unwind by the fire. Mm and talk about the day and drink a little glass of sherry. And oh my gosh, how it takes me back. I remember, it was so funny, when when I got married, we had a wedding here in the States, but then we, my dad also hosted sort of a you know, reception in South Africa for all the South African family. And I remember, because I got married in Nazarene family here, they have really strict thoughts when it comes to alcohol. So no alcohol was served at our wedding here in America. But when we were in South Africa, not only was alcohol served with dinner, but when you arrived at the event that my dad hosted at his house, when you arrived at the front door, they were serving immediately sherry. You were given a glass of sherry before you even walked oh. into the house. Oh. And then there was like red and white wine with dinner. Then there was champagne with cake. And then there was port afterwards, you know, and <laughs> it's just the the two different stories, right? Two different families. Yeah. And so when I think about my dad and his glass of sherry in the evenings, I am like instantly transported. And I've often thought, you mm-hmm. know, in Harry Potter, they have what they call that flu powder that you can sprinkle mm-hmm, in a fire mm-hmm. and then you can travel. I've always wished I could do that, that. but these (laughs) moments, right, like with your traditions or my dad drinking his sherry at night, they really do that. They transport me and Mm -hmm. immediately I know how I feel and what the sherry tastes like and what kind of night it is and how the fire is crackling and where my dad is standing. Immediately I'm back in that spot 
as if I was there in person. And these things are our ordinary daily lives often, these traditions, these rhythms, um, and yet they're so powerful. And one thing, and maybe we'll end with this, I'll read just a, a little bit from, from the books um, themselves, but one thing I appreciate about them is that they too are really focused on just these ordinary aspects of daily life. They are very domestic, very daily, and actually there's um, a portion I'll read from one of the books this is the second book, um, where Isabel is asked um, by a new friend about being a philosopher. And I think he's imagining it as she must live in this higher realm than we do. She is somehow higher than mere mortals (laughs) because she's a real philosopher. But she has actually been um, sort of distracted. Uh, so the novels are really just made up of what is Isabel thinking about? And <laughs> she's thinking about all kinds of things. Um, but what she happens to be thinking about when this friend is asking, questioning her, is she's looking out in the window into her garden and thinking about all the weeds and how she hasn't mm. taken time to properly tend her garden. And so she um, she's looking at the garden. The friend kind of follows her gaze at the garden. Um, And he says, being a philosopher, though, must be rather different from being anything else. You must think about everything. You must spend your time pondering over what things mean, a somewhat higher realm than the rest of us inhabit. Isabel drew herself away from the lawn. She had been thinking about weeds, but weeds and what to do about them were very much a part of everyday life, and everyday life was exactly what philosophy was about— We were rooted in it inevitably, and how we reacted to it, our customs, our observances, and here I'm thinking about the sherry, um, our observances was the very stuff of moral philosophy. Hume had called them these little conventions, a kind of lesser morality, and in her view, he had been right. It's much more mundane and everyday than you would imagine, she began. And these books really are much more mundane every day than you would imagine. I think I try not to look at reviews online before a conversation, but I am just guessing that there are reviews out there of these books that say, ah, boring, mundane, (laughs) right? Too slow. And yet that is where I find, I don't know, the beauty and the power and mystery of, of these lives we are actually living in actual places. And I'll just read, um, One more quotation, because here um, Alexander McCall Smith is talking about Edinburgh, Um, Edinburgh, which is really this other person in the book. This was a townscape raised in the teeth of cold winds from the east, a city of winding cobbled streets and haughty pillars, a city of dark nights and candlelight and intellect. And you can just tell in that, like, this is how he's... Now, this is not everyone's Edinburgh, but this is his Edinburgh. Yeah. And this is the Edinburgh he loves, you know, as this academic. And and also, it is his adopted city. Mm. And I think that speaks to me as well, to know that we can... Not everything is chosen for us. It isn't always just that we're born into a place. But sometimes we, we make choices, whether we know fully or not, to belong to people and to belong to places that that are unexpected. You and I have chosen to belong to people and to belong to places that weren't inevitable based on where we were born. And I think 
the stories that have emerged in our lives are really beautiful and really good. And that's what I pull out of these novels. You know, he he journeyed to study as a young man, apparently, to Edinburgh. Um, and though he left, he returned, and now he's really returned in these novels um, to explore his love for this place. And um, I don't know, I just, I really appreciate that, that it's not just what we're given, where we're born, what is inevitable, but also that uh, we make choices and then beautiful stories grow out of them. And so um, I hope I write about place the way he does through eyes of love. Um, I think I've done that and I want to go on doing that because maybe sometimes it's only in telling the stories that we we realize the truth of the story we're living. And, um, and so part of what we've explored today is our longing, our Whew, yeah, longing maybe to be with people or in places where that are distant from us. Um, but when we tell the full story, there is also, I know for you, that moment of coming home yes. and seeing your Maryland home. Yes, I'm so glad you lights. ended there because I w- <laughs> it's good to push me to think about that because as I was driving today here to the church where I sit and record in a little basement classroom, I was just struck all over again by the cherry blossoms here. They are just glorious. And we have a lot of cherry blossoms. We also have a lot of those pink saucer magnolias around here that you have Mm -hmm, at your house. mm -hmm. They just seem like extravagance because they're just along the, the highway, just pink, just for as far as the eye can see. And you're pushing me to think here in my adopted state how much I love these trees, how Washington, D.C. at this time of year is magnificent, how... And how my family know how much I love it. I have a phone case here that has cherry blossoms on it that Peter bought for me. My youngest daughter, Zoe, she painted me recently as a gift to me, um, this beautiful cherry blossom tree that is just weeping with blossoms that are like a pink carpet. And she said she did it that way because she knows how much I miss the jacarandas from South Africa that have a purple carpet. So she painted this pink carpet. And in our living room, I have a huge canvas photograph of cherry blossom trees. And you're right. There's a love story here too that I would miss out on. I wouldn't know you if I hadn't come here Mm -hmm. to the States. We wouldn't have these conversations or this friendship. And so it's good to remember there's so much about this adopted city that I love deeply and that has become part of me and my rhythms and how my children, I don't know if they're just tired of me saying it, but spring is my favorite season. And when we drive here, there's a road near our house called Forest. It's actually the name of the street, Forest Road. And in the springtime, it just comes alive with trees. The golden green is so beautiful. I want to cry when I drive through it. And that's an experience you only get here in the Northern Hemisphere because of winter. (laughs) So you're Mm -hmm. right. Gosh, Mm -hmm. it's nice to know that we celebrate our adopted homes and cities and stories too. Mm -hmm. And we'll go on reading books that allow us to travel to other places and try out other lives and know that that just enriches the actual ordinary daily lives that we have been given and for which we are very grateful. If you enjoyed today's conversation, won't you take a moment right now, open up that podcast app and look for the subscribe button right next to our podcast profile image. And we think this podcast is best enjoyed with friends. So tell a friend, click share episode in your podcast app and send a friend our link.